Well, I love studying through the Gospels. Um, it's hard to say that you have a favorite um, book in the Bible or a favorite group of books, but uh, the Gospels would be right up there for me. I love the life of Jesus. I love how they're put together, um, the particular uh, Gospel accounts, the four of them. Uh, each of them is unique, uh, presents the Lord from a different perspective, and it's fascinating to see all of those uh, come together in Scripture and just to be able to understand our Savior better through the Gospel accounts. Um, but as you're as you're reading the Gospels, um, even if you're reading through the Bible this year, you'll you're reading through the Gospel of Mark now and almost done with that. But as you're reading them, one of the things that's really helpful is to know something of the cultural and historical background of the time that Jesus was living in. Um, he came to a particular people in a particular culture at a time period in history. And so it's helpful to understand at least some of what was happening during the time that Jesus was in the nation of Israel and was doing his ministry. And one of the things that is very true of Israel during this time is that the nation of Israel, I don't know if you know this or not, but they were a conquered people during this time. I mean, they weren't ruling themselves as they had throughout the history of the nation of Israel. And think about that for a moment and what that would have been like to be a conquered people. They were living under the thumb of foreign invaders. Now, here in America, we we don't know what that's like at all um, to have that happen to us. We haven't experienced anything like that. And so it's hard to fathom what it would be like to wake up every day and to have a ruler over your people who has been put there by an emperor living thousands of miles away, and this guy makes decisions that impact your life, or to wake up and go out into the city to the market and to see troops that are in the streets from the foreign country who has has taken over your country, um, to use the currency of of the foreigners in your daily life. I mean, what would that be like? And that was the situation for the nation of Israel, for the people during the time of Jesus. And that really helps us to understand a lot about the life and ministry of Christ. But because of that, because they were under the thumb of foreign invaders, the Jewish people struggled with that, obviously. And they struggled with it because they had promises in the Old Testament that this land was supposed to be theirs. And they were supposed to be the ones ruling over it. Um, And they were God's special people. And Gentiles, these people who were ruling over them, the Gentiles were supposed to be on the outside. They were unclean. And now they have the authority over us. It should not be like this in Israel. And so different Jews would try to handle this in different ways. Certain Jews would try their best to keep as pure and as clean as possible. And we've talked about the Pharisees. And so what they would do is they would make a fence around the Old Testament law, and they would make all these extra commands beyond the law to try to maintain holiness, as they saw it, and purity, and to try to not be contaminated by these foreign invaders. And nearly every Jewish person, the Pharisees included, had some expectation from the Old Testament that God was going to return to his people and that when he returned to his people, he would send a deliverer and that this deliverer would free the nation of Israel from foreign oppressors. They they were not supposed to be living under the thumb of Rome. And so they had this 
deep-rooted expectation that God would come back and he would fulfill his promises and it would be their land again and he would do this through a political deliverer who would come. And the Jews understood, many of them, that they were not supposed to embrace. They believed they were not supposed to embrace the Gentiles. The Gentiles were supposed to be on the outside looking in and they were supposed to be distinct from the Gentiles. Now, all of that is important because when Jesus comes to earth, and lands in the nation of Israel as a Jewish man and as a teacher of the Old Testament, he really shook up the Jewish conceptions of what this deliverer was supposed to be like. They were expecting a political deliverer, and he was not that and didn't want to be that. And there's reasons why even the disciples had trouble embracing him as the Messiah and why they didn't understand what he was teaching. And we'll see this in dramatic ways when we get to chapters 8, 9, and 10, when Jesus begins to tell them, look, I'm going to die. And they're like, no, you're not. (laughs) This is not what the deliverer is supposed to be like at all. This is not what we read in the Old Testament. They weren't reading the Old Testament quite right, but when Jesus shows up and begins to talk this way, and when he shows up and begins to do ministry, he broke through certain barriers that the Jewish people had for the Messiah and for the nation of Israel. And as he did this and he broke through those barriers, he brought deliverance to the Jewish people and ultimately, we're going to see this morning, to the world. And so we want to talk about some of those barriers this morning that Jesus broke through that really made it uncomfortable for many, many people in Israel at the time. So if you remember from last week, if you were here with us, In Mark chapter 7, the last couple weeks, uh, Jesus has been teaching on what truly defiles a person, what makes them unclean or unholy, and what's truly wrong with us. And when he's been teaching on this, his primary point has been it's not external things that make you unclean. It's what's in your heart that matters. And so the Jews had put up these traditions that had really functioned to exclude people from God's covenant grace. And Jesus confronts that head on. And they'd raised barriers to keep out uncleanness and to keep in purity. And Jesus comes along and he just runs through those barriers and changes the perception or hopefully changes the perception of what we have of uncleanness and impurity and of what really matters. And so we're going to see him knock down a couple of those barriers today, one in particular that is significant for the Jewish people. But if you're not there yet, Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 37 is where we're going to be this morning. And as we're looking at this passage, we're going to see two barriers that Jesus breaks to bring salvation. Pretty simple. Two barriers that Jesus breaks in order to bring salvation. And the first one of these is the ethnic barrier. So we saw last time the Pharisees were very concerned with unclean food or with washing of hands. And in their minds, if food made you unclean, if eating with unwashed hands and unclean foods, if that made you unclean, then certainly being a Gentile puts you on the outside. And so the the Pharisees, the scribes, they wanted to exclude certain people from the blessings of Israel, those people who were not clean, those who were Gentiles. But look what Jesus does. After giving this teaching that we saw last time, last couple weeks, all the way up through verse 23, look where he goes in verse 24. This is right on the heels of his instruction about internal and external righteousness. 
And look where he goes in verse 24. And from there, he rose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So if you're reading through your Bible and you don't make a note of where that is, you're going to miss some of the significance potentially of this story. If you're not familiar with Bible geography, let me show you a map here. I don't know if you can see real clearly. That's why I put the pretty red arrows up there. But the one on the bottom is the Sea of Galilee. It's pointing right at the Sea of Galilee. And then the other, and you can see kind of the purple uh, Galilee region there. And then the other one is pointing at Tyre. And Sidon is a couple cities up the coast there. All right. So when you talk about going to Tyre and Sidon, you're not staying within the boundaries of Israel. Okay. This is a Gentile region. And in fact, Tyre was one of the most pagan places imaginable for Jews. I mean, I guess it would be like Las Vegas, you know? Like, this place is on the outside. This is an unholy place, and we don't want to go anywhere near this place at all, all right? One Jewish historian, a a man named Josephus, said that the people of Tyre were, quote, notoriously our bitterest enemies, So this was not a place that had a good relationship with Israel. And the Jewish expectation was that when God showed up and when his deliverer came, that he would expel the Gentiles and not embrace them. But notice what happens in verse 24 and 25. And from there he rose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. So it's the same sort of uh, incident that keeps happening here. Jesus goes, he wants to remain hidden for whatever reason, and he can't remain hidden. And it would seem that Gentiles were coming around him and wanting to be near him. But this one particular woman shows up. Look at verse 25. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. And look at the description of her further in verse 26. Now, the woman, and Mark makes it very clear, was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now, the emphasis here is on her ethnicity, and Mark makes it clear. He wants us to think about that. You're in a Gentile region, and you have a Gentile woman, a specific ethnicity here. And as you're reading about this woman, there's probably not a character in the Gospel of Mark who has more going against her than this woman. I mean, it's like a litany of demerits here for her to come in contact with a Jewish rabbi like Jesus. I mean, she's a woman. Put her on the outside. She's a Gentile. She's not just a Gentile. She's a Syrophoenician. She's the region of Tyre. And she has a daughter who is possessed by an unclean spirit. And so The working theory would be that she has been contaminated by contact with this unclean spirit through her daughter, and so she has got everything stacked against her. And notice here how Mark describes the demon initially that's inside of her. What does he say? An unclean spirit. And he does that on purpose because he's connecting this story back to what Jesus has just taught about cleanness and uncleanness regarding foods. And so the point here in Mark's description, is she is on the outside. But what's interesting is the way she approaches Jesus. Look back at verse the end of verse 25 and the end of verse 26. She heard of him, and what does she do? She came and fell down at his feet. 
And then look at the end of verse 26. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. What is Mark describing? She, she falls before him. She begs him. Mark is describing her heart. This is her posture before Jesus. He's described her outside, her external, her ethnicity, that in the Jewish mind would have put her on the outside. But Mark is going here and describing her heart, her posture before the Lord. Her heart is positioned rightly before Jesus. She falls before him, showing honor to him. And obviously we talked about the importance of the heart last week, didn't we? How that's where evil comes from. But on the flip side, that's where true faith comes from as well. So she asks Jesus, she begs him to cast the demon out of her, da- out of her daughter. And how does Jesus respond? Man, things start to get uncomfortable here. <laughs> Look at verse 27. It's not what we expect. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. This is offensive in many ways, what Jesus says here. I mean, this is abrupt, and he seems to be dismissing this woman's need and calling her a dog as a Gentile. And I mean, when you read this, put yourself in this mother's situation. I mean, who can blame her for hearing about a man who can help her daughter and coming to this man and begging him to help her daughter? Why is this cold and callous response the way Jesus answers her? I mean, if you've been reading the Gospel of Mark, haven't we come to expect compassion from Jesus and not something like this in his response to her? Well, we certainly come to expect compassion and we'll see compassion. But there's a couple of things to understand about this response that will help us to see really what's going on here. First, keep in mind the entire context of this story and this response to Jesus. You have to read the whole thing and even read it in light of what we saw the last couple weeks, the beginning of Mark chapter 7. What is Jesus just taught on? He's taught on true defilement and it's not externals, it's the heart, it's internals. And so the true defilement is internal, so therefore true faith is internal as well. And Jesus is not going to suddenly flip his position on this. And because a Gentile woman approaches him, all of a sudden Gentiles are on the out, externals matter, and certain kinds of food matter for her. And so she's on the outside and get away from me, you Gentile dog. That's, that's not what he's doing here at all. He isn't reversing his stance on true defilement and telling her that her ethnicity is going to prohibit her from salvation and from grace. So notice a couple things about his words here. The Gentiles in his words were understood as dogs, right? This is, this is almost like a parable, isn't it? I mean, it's using metaphors, and the metaphor here is the Gentiles are the dogs, and so what does that make the Jewish people there? The children. And that would have been a very normal Jewish self-understanding. They are God's children. They're his chosen people, children of the king. But notice as Jesus says this, and he puts all of that in perspective, notice the word first here. Let the children be fed first. And so he includes that word here. He's not excluding Gentiles. He's not saying you can never receive grace or help or salvation. All he's saying is there's an order to this. 
And I think what he's doing is he's almost playing the devil's advocate, and he's taking on the very typical Jewish understanding of the day, which would have been Gentiles are dogs, Jews are the children of God, they're on the outside, we're on the inside, and he's, he's taking that understanding on and almost playing the devil's advocate here. Gentiles weren't to be excluded, but God's word says that the son came to the Jewish people and they received the teaching first, and then it was to expand out to the Gentiles. And that is what many of the Jewish people were missing, that it was to expand out to Gentiles. He isn't just the deliverer for the Jewish people. Salvation is not based on ethnicity or on birth family. It's based on faith. Notice how this woman responds in verse 28. I love this. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So if you're thinking about what Jesus says as a parable, which I think you should, okay, what does this woman do in her answer? She enters into the parable, doesn't she? She accepts the terms of the parable. She believes that the the way Jesus is presenting reality is true based on this parable that he's just said. And she places her life and her position within the parable. What is that? That is faith. She's taking his word, his teaching, and he's saying, that is true. That is reality. And I'm placing my life within that reality. That is the essence of faith. And that's what the disciples couldn't get. They didn't respond to Jesus' parables like that. And that's why they kept coming and asking him to explain them because they weren't, they weren't putting themselves in the reality presented by the parable, but she is. That's true faith. Look at verse 29, how Jesus responds back to her. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. The disciples didn't grasp it, but this woman a Gentile Syrophoenician woman with an unclean daughter from Tyre, she gets it. She understands the heartbeat of the Messiah's ministry here. She gets it better than the disciples do, apparently, at this point. And what she grasps is that the the Messiah's ministry was never supposed to be limited to the Jewish people. I mean, you can see this all the way back in the Old Testament over and over again. Genesis 12, this is a key passage in your Old Testament. So much is built off of this text. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Right? That, like, that's the goal of the Jewish people. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families or the nations of the earth shall be blessed. This was the plan all along. Just another one in the servant passages in Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And there's so many passages in the Old Testament that predict this, that it's going to happen. Messiah's deliverance is going to come to the nations. And for this woman, it certainly does. Look at verse 30. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Grace and deliverance come to her because of her faith and because of Messiah's mission to the nations. Now, this is a great little story. I love the 
play back and forth between Jesus and this woman here. What can we learn for us today from this story? One of the things I think is very clear from this is that ethnicity has always been a dividing line between people, hasn't it? And it's so true for us today in our country and in our world. It's never far from us. And it's because of man's sinfulness that we put up these barriers and these walls and we divide and we exclude based on something that is external like ethnicity. And let me just make this as clear as I can in light of Jesus's mission to Gentiles here, of which you and I are Gentiles on the outside. Most of us are. Let me make this as clear as I can. Jesus values racial harmony. And he values the unity of different ethnicities within his church. That is something that is so close to his heartbeat. And that's why he goes on these missions out to the Gentiles to make this abundantly clear. And because he values this, you and I should value this as well, shouldn't we? It's not a political issue. This is a gospel issue. This is wrapped up in the heart of the gospel. Christ desires in the future to have people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation worshiping him around his throne. Revelation chapter 5. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, and people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Racism is satanic. And believers ought to do everything within our power to accurately reflect this vision of what God wants for his church and for his people. This is what he's after. So let me just encourage you with something that I heard this week. We have the opportunity right here in our city to live this out. I was at a pastor's lunch this past Tuesday, and there was a man there who's originally from Bangladesh, and he's living in Hamtramck, which I didn't realize how small Hamtramck is, but two and a half square miles, okay? And he's living in Hamtramck, and he's doing ministry to Muslims in Hamtramck. And he told us that there are 84 languages spoken within that two and a half miles in Hamtramck. 84 languages. That's unbelievable. And this is the goal of the Great Commission, what you see on the screen here. This is God's heartbeat. People from every tribe and every tongue and every nation worshiping him, saved and discipled through the Great Commission. And this gets a lot easier now, doesn't it? Because the going part of this is not so difficult. They're coming here. There are people from Yemen. How hard is it to get into Yemen, to organize ministry to Muslims in Yemen? They are coming here. They live a few miles from us. In Hamtramck, people from Yemen, Bangladesh, Egypt, Pakistan, and many, many other countries are here. They live in Downriver. They live in the city. They live in Hamtramck. They are near us. And God's desire is to see those people saved, brought into the kingdom, discipled, and them to reach others. And so that's why Jesus smashes through this ethnic barrier here. And we're going to see this over and over again in the Gospels. 
It's one of the things that highlights his ministry. It's reaching Gentiles. And of course, you're going to see this in Acts as well. So this is the first barrier, the ethnic barrier. And we'll see this again next week in the feeding of the 4,000. But let's get to our second barrier this morning. This is found in verses 31 to 37. So the ethnic barrier with this woman. And then we've got another great little story here. The brokenness barrier in verses 31 to 37. Now, what do I mean by this? The brokenness barrier. Well, as you've been reading through Mark, I hope that you have seen just how shattered and broken our world is. I mean, you know this from daily experience and you see this in the gospel of Mark as well. People are broken. They are battered physically. We've seen over and over again, emotionally, spiritually And here in this story, in verses 31 to 37, we meet a man who is so broken that he can't even interact with Jesus. And so Jesus goes on another journey to meet this man. Look at verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon. Now, if you remember, this is quite a ways out of the way. He goes up the coast to Sidon and then comes back down to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Now, if you've been reading through the Gospel of Mark, you know that we've seen Jesus do ministry in the Decapolis before. It was a very brief ministry. He took the boat across the sea in chapter 5, landed, and this demon-possessed man met him on the shore, screaming and cutting himself, and Jesus cast the demons out. And then this man went out in the Decapolis and shared Christ with the people that lived there, the Gentiles who were on the outside, and here Jesus returns to this region. So his ministry to those outside of Israel continues. Look at verse 32. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. So he's so broken, he can't even bring himself to Jesus. He's probably not even aware of the ministry of Jesus. He can't speak. He can't hear. He may not even know that Jesus exists and that he's been healing people. He's a Gentile, he's on the outside, and he's unable to do anything for himself. This man is broken, if anyone's broken. So look what Jesus does in verse 33. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. A couple of things here. First of all, he takes him aside out of the crowd, takes him aside privately. This miracle isn't done for a show. This miracle isn't done to attract a crowd. It is done out of compassion and concern for this individual. Jesus deals with this man as an individual, a human being deserving kindness and compassion. And also notice, when he takes him aside, we get some intense details about what Jesus does to heal this man here. He puts his fingers into his ears and spits and touches the man's tongue. It's quite a bit of of touch here that happens in this miracle. And we just saw Jesus doesn't even have to be in the same physical location as someone to heal them. So why? Well, he touches here the man's obvious problem areas, his ears and his tongue. And what this tells us is Jesus doesn't shy away from this man's brokenness. He goes right after his difficulty, and he deals with it even though this man no doubt would have been ritually unclean. I mean, to 
To touch someone's bodily fluid like saliva would have normally made you ritually unclean. But one of the things that we've seen in Mark over and over again is that when Jesus touches someone who's unclean, he doesn't become unclean. They become clean. They get healed. That's what happens here. His compassion continues. Look at verse 34. So as he's doing this, he puts his fingers in his ears. Verse 34, and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him in Aramaic, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Now, you're reading verse 34. He looks up to heaven, which Jesus does several times in the Gospel of Mark, but then he sighs here. And as you're reading that, you have to think, why? Why does he sigh? And why does Mark draw our attention to the fact that Jesus sighs here? Well, I don't know for sure, but... This same word is used a couple of other key times in the New Testament, and I can't help but think there's a correlation here. First of all, it's used in Romans 8. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. It's also used in 2 Corinthians. Look at the context of this one as well. I'll read this whole section. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan. Of course, he's talking about your body being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Both of these passages that use this word groan are talking about our temporal difficulties that you and I face while we are existing in these broken bodies, these bodies that are under the results of the curse of sin. And these are talking about the groaning that we have while we live in this world that is not as it should be, that is under the curse of sin. And both of these passages point out that we groan not as a way of complaining and not as a way of being frustrated necessarily to a sinful extent with these bodies and with the brokenness, but we groan out of a sense of longing and hope. And it's a longing and a hope that looks toward the future and anticipates that one day we will be free from this broken world and from the curse of sin. And we'll be free from the damage that has been inflicted by sin over the centuries and the millennium. And it says that we long for that time. Why? Because we have the Holy Spirit who's like a down payment. And the Holy Spirit shows us that more like this is coming in the future. But it's not here yet. And so, in the meantime, we live in this broken world, in these bodies that are prone to sickness and difficulty and pain. And we anticipate the time when everything will be put back together. And so go back to Mark 7. Why does Jesus sigh here? Well, I can't help but think he sighs here because he looks around at the brokenness and he groans and says, this is not how it's supposed to be. Men are not supposed to be deaf and mute. They're not supposed to be deaf and mute in the world that I made. I didn't create it like this. This is difficult. 
But as Jesus sighs, as he groans, and as he thinks about the way things should be, keep in mind that we're talking this morning about Jesus breaking through barriers. And he breaks through the ethnic barrier, and he also breaks through the brokenness barrier. And he says in verse 34, be opened, and look at verse 35. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Now the ESV I just read says his tongue was released. It literally means his bonds, his fetters, or his chains were broken off of him, were released. Christ brings freedom from brokenness, and the result is what his kingdom will ultimately look like. This is the way things are supposed to be. We're free from chains. We're free from brokenness. We're free from the damage inflicted by sin. And as you read this little story here, and Jesus says, be opened, and the man's ears are open, we have every reason to believe that these words were the first words that this man heard. Be opened. And all of a sudden, he could hear the birds and other people talking. And all of a sudden, when his brain was thinking something, his mouth was saying what his brain was thinking, which is not how things had been during his lifetime. Now he begins functioning as a full human being should, as God intended it in the Garden of Eden, and not in this broken state. But if you've been with us in the Gospel of Mark, you know that these miracles are not given to us just to show us how powerful Jesus is. And he is powerful, and they do teach us that. But they're given to us to teach us other things as well. And this particular miracle is really significant in the light of a particular Old Testament passage. And I'm going to ask you to turn there. It's in Isaiah, Isaiah 35. Flip over there. We're going to read a chunk of this passage. So in Isaiah 35, as you're turning there, I'll kind of set the context of what's happening here. Isaiah, God is speaking through Isaiah, and he's promising a time to the nation of Israel when things are going to be set right, when things are going to be as they should be, and when brokenness will be fixed. Look at verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. I mean, the the curse in Genesis 3 was that we would have difficulty growing things. And here is a time is described when even the wilderness and the desert will blossom abundantly. Things are going to be set right. Look at verse 2. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Now skip down to verse 5 and look how else this time is described. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. You can obviously see here in verses 5 and 6, the deaf man and the mute man are both described here. And Isaiah, God through Isaiah is saying, when events like this happen, you know that God's restorative kingdom is at hand. 
But when events like this happen, something else has already happened. And look at verses 3 and 4. I intentionally skipped those verses. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. When are these things going to happen? Look at this. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. If you read this passage in light, if you read Mark 7 in light of Isaiah 35, you can clearly see that Jesus is the divine fulfillment of this passage. When God returns to his people, things are going to be made right. The deaf are going to hear. The mute are going to speak. He will bring salvation. He will bring healing. And ultimately, when God returns to his people, this salvation will expand to all the nations of the earth. And so when you hear that, and when you see these promises, how do we respond to that? Go back to Mark 7. Mark 7, look at verse 36. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. We ought to respond with zeal, with joy. And we ought to respond that way because our brokenness has been dealt a decisive blow, hasn't it? I mean, we don't experience it fully yet, but we have the initial down payment, don't we? We have the Holy Spirit who promises, like an engagement ring, who promises that one day all that we read in Isaiah 35, the reality presented about the kingdom of God and the gospels, all of that is going to come true. That's what we're headed for. Now. We don't see that yet. And dealing with the fragile nature of our human bodies and with our sinfulness oftentimes brings guilt and shame. And that can be an ongoing struggle for many people, even believers. I mean, you can see in Genesis 3, one of the very first things that happens when Adam and Eve commit that sin is they are ashamed. They're guilty and they hide. And they don't want to be exposed spiritually or physically to a holy God. But Jesus comes to earth to confront that guilt and shame and to deal with that head on. I mean, you can imagine for this man in Mark 7, there was a certain amount of guilt and shame living in this way. I mean, he was broken, he couldn't hear, he couldn't speak. But can you imagine the joy of hearing those words be opened? And now he's able to function and enjoy relationships with others far beyond what he could have before. And I think the lesson for us out of this passage is you and I have to come face to face with our brokenness, recognize it, understand it, see the guilt, see the shame that is there through sin. And then understand the portrait of Jesus that the Gospels give us is a God who comes to redeem us from those things, to put things right. That's why he was born and that's why he died, to overcome guilt and shame and brokenness. 
He breaks down barriers so that we can enter into a full relationship with God. So we don't have to hide in the garden anymore and try to clothe ourselves with our own righteousness. So that through him, we can approach God, the throne of grace, boldly. And he's been doing that sort of thing for thousands of years and in millions of lives. What does it take to receive that gift? Well, it's a response like the woman we saw here. Her response was to come to Jesus in humility and in faith. Put herself in the world that he presents, the narrative world that he presents. Accept the reality of sin, separation from God, and trust the compassion of Jesus Christ that we see here with this deaf man. This is the Savior that he is. This is what he came to do in and through us. And he came so that you and I would like verses 36 and 37 we would more zealously proclaim this reality. That we would tell others about the work that he has done, ridding us of our guilt and shame, and one day of our brokenness. Let's pray. Father, we're humbled when we see your compassion for broken human beings. We are so undeserving of this, Lord. We are spiritually deaf. We are on the outside. We're born into this world dead in our sins, and yet you have compassion on us. You deal with our brokenness. You break down the barriers that we have set up, the barriers of sin and arrogance and and pride and self-centeredness and shame. You break through those things, and you bring salvation to us, Lord. Help us to respond to that with joy, with zeal, and help us to proclaim that news to others this week. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your healing. In Christ's name we pray.